from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am proud, honored to be sitting in for Tony today here on Washington Watch. And I am proud and honored that you have chosen to join us because this is a most significant of Mondays. The Supreme Court decision on Friday maybe ended the controversy around the election, but maybe not. Uh, And the Electoral College is also meeting today, has met today, to decide who is going to be the next president. Is that the end of the story? We're going to discuss that, as well as some other things in Georgia, with Ralph Reed, who's the founder and chairman of Faith and Freedom Coalition. Also on the program, uh, we are going to talk about a letter that a group of African-American pastors wrote to Raphael Warnock, challenging him on his uh, pro-abortion position, despite being a reverend. We will talk with... Will Hahn from the Beckett Fund about a lawsuit against the District of Columbia challenging the restriction on religious gatherings. The rule they have there, it doesn't matter if there's 10,000 people who can fit in your in your uh, building, you're only allowed to have 50 at any given time. Is that constitutional? We'll discuss that. And finally, at the end of the program, stick around because Dr. Michelle Cotella, who is the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, will be with us to talk about the coronavirus vaccine. Should you be excited? Should you be nervous? We will discuss all that. But before we get there, as we approach the end of this long year, we know that monumental battles are on the horizon in 2021. But you can partner with FRC to make a difference. When you give before December 31st, your gift will have double the impact thanks to a $1 million matching challenge. Will you help us defend the life Biblical views on marriage and the free exercise of our faith. We would sure appreciate it if you would, and if you, if you would like to, and we hope you will, get your gift doubled. You can call 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com right now to vote, to donate. Again, it's 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com, and we so appreciate you doing so. But to the news of the day, I'd like to bring in Ralph Reed, who's the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Mr. Reed, thanks for joining us today on Washington Watch. Yeah, you bet. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, we are thrilled to have you, and I'd like you just to very quickly um, tell us, what's your reaction to what happened at the Supreme Court on Friday uh, and, and what's happening today with the Electoral College? Well, I'm very disappointed uh, that the Supreme Court uh, did not grant standing to Texas. If they weren't going to take the Texas case, I think it was incumbent upon the high court to take one of the state-specific cases, whether it was from Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Georgia, and deal with some of the substantive issues involving irregularities and outright fraud that occurred in the November 3rd election. Uh, Here in Georgia, in my home state, uh, we know that there were people who were registered to vote who were underage and not therefore eligible to vote. There were thousands of them. There were people who voted who were registered to vote in other states. There were people who uh, had died whose votes were counted. Uh, And uh, we believe that had a... uh, 
forensic audit been conducted of the signatures that appeared on the absentee ballots that came in at a rate of six times the normal number of absentee ballots that we would have found even greater evidence of malfeasance. So I, I think it's really unfortunate that given the number of Americans who believe that the election results were tainted by these kinds of fraudulent activities, that the court did not take the case and resolve the issue one way or the other as it did in the case of Bush v. Gore 20 years ago. What do you make of the way that the court turned down the case? And it was pretty quiet. They didn't say a whole lot about it. What do you read into that? Is this politics? Is it expediency? Is it just not wanting to deal with the, the backlash? What's your opinion on why the court handled it the way they did? Well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously it was an issue of standing with regard to whether or not Texas had a right to object to what had been done in other states. And I, I think that's an intellectually defensible position to take. I don't agree with it. But if you're not going to take the Texas case based on standing, then at a minimum, in order to have these issues resolved in a court of law, at a minimum, there are legitimate issues that have been raised, including uh, the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania deciding that absentee ballots that arrived after November 3rd could be counted. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito ordered that those ballots be set aside and that they not be included in the vote total. It's still not clear whether they're included or not. There are issues involving absentee ballots in Wisconsin, issues involving absentee ballots and, and people ineligible to vote who voted in Georgia. To just kick that, you know, sweep that under the rug and not ever have it fully litigated and dealt with, I think is not good for American democracy. Whether or not you think Joe Biden won legitimately or whether or not you think that if these issues had been dealt with, that it would have changed the outcome either in one of the four or five states or in the entire election, they should have been dealt with. As it is, you've got lots of Americans who don't believe they had their day in court, and that's really unfortunate. I would agree with that, and I think all but the willfully ignorant uh, can see that there are a lot of problems in the way, in the irregular way, across state boundaries and jurisdictions that votes are counted. Do you think that all of the attention focused on this issue, uh, regardless of how this ends up resolving itself in 2020, do you think there's an opportunity to get to a place where uh, people, again, across the political spectrum can have confidence in the outcome of our elections? Uh, I, I can tell you that if we have anything to say about it, uh, yes. Um, I am absolutely confident that in those states where Republican legislatures still have a majority, and that is not only Georgia, but uh, Florida, Texas, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Now, some of those the last three in particular, currently have Democratic governors. So, you know, you're going to have to manage your way through a veto process, potentially. But I can tell you that uh, I think conservatives and the pro-family movement 
are going to make sure that this never happens again. Uh, we're going to have to uh, make sure that there's uh, much tighter verification procedures. Look, in my state and in many states, you have to show, I just voted. I literally came to do this radio show after having gone and voted early. Early voting began today in Georgia. And when I walked to the voting booth at the Buckhead Library in Atlanta where I vote, I had to show an ID. But if I had mailed in an absentee ballot, I'm not required to show an ID. Now, that might have been one thing when you were having 250,000 votes being cast absentee out of four or five million. But now we're seeing a million, a million and a half, two million votes being cast by mail. Why is the standard for ensuring a photo ID so that we know whether or not that person is who they say they are? Why is it looser for a mail-in ballot than it is for when you vote in person? That needs to be fixed. Signature verification needs to be fixed. There are a lot of things that need to be fixed, and I assure you we're going to do it when these legislatures come back into session in January. I think you're going to find a lot of agreement for that, and I think you're going to find a lot of support for the idea that this it is not logical that the standard for voting would be different depending on whether you mail it in or based on uh, whether you vote in person. Now, because you are in Georgia and you have voted early today, um, the subtext of all of this uh, presidential election controversy is that there is a runoff ballot or a runoff election taking place in the state of Georgia that will ultimately determine the balance of power in the United States Senate. How do you think the uh, election controversy over election integrity at the national level, at the presidential level, is affecting those races on the ground in Georgia? Um, look, I think there's a lot of upset people. Uh, uh, we certainly supported the idea of our legislature going into special session in order to fix some of these issues that we're talking about before January 5th. Uh, the decision was made by the governor not to do that. So we're going to have to run this election under the current set of laws. But I can tell you this right now. We're going to have 4,000. Let me repeat that. We're going to have 4,000 election observers and poll watchers. We're going to have SWAT teams of election law attorneys, including some of the finest bulldog election law attorneys in the nation who are going to be pre-positioned in the key counties where there were problems in November and where we have to be concerned about problems in January. My organization, Faith and Freedom Coalition, is encouraging people to volunteer to not only be poll watchers and election observers, but to be poll workers, to actually work at the polling locations and verify the signatures on the absentee ballot. We're filling time slots with people to do that. Uh, we know that if we let them, they will steal this election, and we are not going to let them. And we want every Christian voter, every conservative voter in the state of Georgia to know that we're going to make sure that this election's integrity is protected. And we thank you for doing so. You know, speaking of bulldog attorneys, uh, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood have both been heard uh, in recent days telling people that the best way to protest the uh, presidential race is not to vote in the U.S. Senate race. Is that a message that you think is penetrating there on the ground in Georgia? 
Uh, you know, look, I, Lynn is a friend of mine. I do not know Sidney Powell, but I do know Lynn Wood. He's a good friend of mine. He's one of the most capable litigators uh, in the country today. Uh, and I understand how upset he was. And again, there are a lot of people who are upset. But the way to fix this is to change the law to have an effective ballot security program, an election integrity program, to make sure that we don't get caught flat-footed in January as we were in November. The way to fix it is not to make Chuck Schumer majority leader, to elect two socialists from the state of Georgia who will support the most extreme radical agenda we've ever seen in this country, including packing the Supreme Court, massive tax increases, gutting the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, Increase funding for Planned Parenthood and abortion on demand. You don't fix it by electing them to the U.S. Senate. Ralph Reed, uh, Faith and Freedom Coalition. Last question. You're going to be part of the FRC Action Pray Vote Stand Rally tomorrow in uh, in at Truett McConnell University in Cleveland, Georgia. What are you going to be telling people there as a little preview? I'm pretty much going to be saying what I just said to your radio audience. Everything's on the line. This is for all the marble. This is the first time in American history that control of the U.S. Senate has been decided in two U.S. Senate races on the same day in one state in a special election in a runoff. Ralph Reed, Faith and Freedom Coalition, thank you so much for joining us. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about one of these candidates in these races, Raphael Warnock and pro-choice pastors. Come on back. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I-, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. 
We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Before the break, I had mentioned, and I want to highlight again, an event that is happening tomorrow in Cleveland, Georgia. FRC Action is sponsoring a Pray, Vote, Stand event uh, around the Georgia runoff elections, which we just got done uh, talking about and we'll speak a little bit more about. But tomorrow, though Tony Perkins is not here on the radio today, he will be at Truett McConnell University at the Benjamin F. Brady Basketball Arena in Cleveland, Georgia. You can RSVP for this event at frcaction.org slash GA. Again, that's frcaction.org slash GA rally. Tony Perkins will be there. Representative Doug Collins, Representative Jody Heiss, Representative Louis Gomer, Ralph Reed, who you just heard, Todd Starnes, and Abraham Hamilton. It is going to be a great, encouraging event with people just like you who have not given up. So be there if you can. Because one of the contestants in these races that we are talking about is Reverend Raphael Warnock, and he does highlight the Reverend part of being Raphael Warnock. And why that is newsworthy in this particular case is because not only is he an outspoken Reverend, he is also outspokenly pro-abortion. And just in the last few days, a group of African-American pastors wrote a letter to uh, Reverend Warnock about this issue. And part of that letter is, I'm going to read a little bit here from you, for you. It says, unborn black, brown, and white lives are so much more than clumps of cells, burdensome inconveniences, or health problems. They are sacred human persons endowed by God with inalienable dignity and worth. We implore you to uphold the biblical defense of life and fight against the systemic racism of abortion. Very well said. One of the authors and signers of this letter is Dean Nelson, who's FRC Senior Fellow for African American Affairs, as well as the Executive Director of the Human Coalition Action. Dean, welcome to the program. Joseph, great to be with you. Glad to always have these meaningful discussions with your audience. Well, we are glad to have you. Tell us, why did you feel compelled to write this letter? Well, one of the reasons, Joseph, is that Pew Research uh, study showed 
I guess this is earlier this year, that over 70% of black Americans consider themselves to be black, excuse me, consider themselves to be conservative or moderate. And so most of the time when we're talking in this political arena, the voice of the conservative African-American, certainly the Christian conservative African-American is not heard. And so we felt like it was important to be able to have a different voice. And this group of about 27, and that number is growing, of black ministers felt like first step would be just out of deference to uh, Reverend Warnock to affirm him for preaching the gospel and for doing some of the things that he's done in his community, but to be very clear that you cannot be consistent with the Bible and say that you are a minister of the gospel, believe the word of God, and support abortion. And so that was really what we wanted to do, and uh, we felt like that from not from a standpoint even of polit- politics, but just from the standpoint of a servant of God challenging Reverend Warnock on his position of abortion. Why do you think he has made such a point of being both a reverend and pro-abortion? And he's taken to Twitter to basically highlight that. I'm a reverend, I'm a pastor, and I support abortion. Why do you think he's trying to merge these two parts of his life? I think he's trying to do that because, number one, he can't get away from it. That's pretty much all that he has done in his career. And there's nothing wrong with that, of being a public servant, serving in the context of of a minister. But secondly, I think that he is trying to grab a hold of the mantle of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he is preaching at the church that MLK from and used to serve at. And so I think that he's trying to uh, almost borrow from the credibility and the mantle of Martin Luther King Jr., who was not pro-abortion. And so I feel like that those are the reasons that he's doing it, and many black ministers uh, like those that have signed on to this letter are not going to let that go without calling him out on these biblical standards. Now, you've made the point that uh you don't see these positions being consistent, biblical, the the gospel, and abortion. Is Reverend Warnock otherwise orthodox in his faith? My suspicion would be, and I don't know him until he became a a candidate for the U.S. Senate. I've not heard his name, and I, I don't really know much about his background. But is he otherwise orthodox? Is this an incongruence, or is this part of a larger pattern of incongruity with with the orthodox gospel? You know what? I I am doing my due diligence to find out. Uh, I want to give deference to Reverend Warnock. Uh, I do know friends who have preached in his church uh, who hold biblical positions just like you and I do. Uh, I have uh, obviously sent the letter. Uh, We want to see if there's an opportunity to sit down with him. Uh, He's participated at events in Georgia with uh, other uh, Orthodox, uh, you know, Christians, uh, people that hold to the views that you and I do. Uh, so I think that he's probably trying to have it both ways, but uh, time will tell. But as it relates to the position of life, as it relates to the position of uh, traditional marriage and support for the LGBT, LGBTQ community, 
he has uh, made it his business to push that. Something that you uh, are aware of is the Equality Act. He's uh, gave, given clear support for the Equality Act, which would do uh, great harm to our religious liberty. So uh, in terms of his orthodox views, uh, we'll see. But certainly from a political standpoint, I believe that electing him to the Senate would do uh, a lot more harm to those in Georgia than, uh, than they would if they were to elect Kelly Leffler. Now, you have sent this letter. Have you gotten a response from him? He's not responded directly to us. Uh, his uh, press people did respond uh, to the reporters. So uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to hear from him uh, when I'm there in Atlanta with these other pastors this week. Dean Nelson, Family Research Council and the Human Coalition Action. Dean, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for... Um, your courage in being public on this and taking on what is a very difficult issue. And thank you very much for your time and joining us today. Stay with us. On the other side, we're going to talk about another religious freedom issue, and we're going to talk about a lawsuit involving the Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. and the mayor of Washington, D.C. Are these restrictions on the size of religious gatherings constitutional? We'll talk about it on the other side of the break. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash prolifemaps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. 
as we approach the end of the year, this is an important time for the Family Research Council, and we would love it if you would stand with us because of all the critical issues that are on the horizon in 2021. And there is a $1 million matching challenge that we would be so grateful and honored if you would help us take advantage of. And you can make a contribution of any size that will be doubled uh, by calling 800-225-4008 or visiting TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's 800-225-4008 or simply visit TonyPerkins.com right now to donate. Thank you for doing so. Can the government limit the number of people in religious gatherings in an effort to stop the spread of the virus? That's one of the questions that the Beckett Fund is raising with the court system on behalf of the Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., against the mayor of Washington, D.C. To discuss that is Will Hahn, an attorney with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Will, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Talk to us a little bit uh, as the start of this. Uh, what are the restrictions that you guys are challenging? Where they come from? Sure. The Archdiocese here is asking the court to allow it to hold safe, socially distant, masked-wearing worship services in time for Christmas. Unfortunately, despite a recent Supreme Court decision, D.C. would not change an arbitrary cap it put in around Thanksgiving, capping worship services at 50 people, even in very large churches, regardless of how many people or percent capacity that a church could actually hold. There are over 650,000 D.C. area Catholics, and at this very at this end of a very difficult year, they're now facing the chilling prospect of being told that there's no room for them at their church this Christmas because of an arbitrary cap that is unconstitutional. Well, that is a slightly familiar story in Christmas season of not having any room in the inn, but we typically think of that as being a problem for Mary and Joseph and not for people 2,000 years later simply trying to go worship Jesus. Now, for those of us who are uh, have been observing this casually, we did think that the Supreme Court ruled on this somewhat recently and said you can't do that. What's Washington, D.C. saying about their restrictions as opposed to the ones that the Supreme Court already struck down? The law is indeed clear. Our complaint was filed on Friday. And if D.C. can allow restaurants to have hundreds of patrons, often wearing no masks, drinking alcohol, which D.C. allows, then it has no reason at all to say that the archdiocese cannot hold a safe, socially distanced, mask-wearing mass at Christmas time. And in D.C., D.C.'s outdoor restrictions on religious gatherings have already been held to violate uh, the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That was the Capitol Hill Baptist Church case earlier this year. D.C.'s restrictions on even indoor gatherings are in a minority nationwide. This was explained to them by the archdiocese who has been working with D.C. for months, and it has an exemplary safety record in this regard. There have been thousands of masses since the summertime when D.C. allowed masses to resume with no known COVID spread connected to them. And the Archdiocese has simply been responsible and safe, and it wants responsible and safe worship services to continue without arbitrary caps. Now, I know your suit was filed on Friday, which means they 
certainly have not had a chance to formally respond to the lawsuit. But in these months-long conversations with the archdiocese, have they tried to explain this position and justify why we think this is appropriate? No, truthfully, the position is unscientific. The, The position is unscientific, and we know that because the restrictions bear no relationship either to the size of the building or to the safety of the activity. By contrast, the science points toward the archdiocese position. There have been three infectious disease experts that have surveyed over 1 million public masses since the summer, mostly in jurisdictions without anything close to the 50-person cap that D.C. has. As I mentioned, D.C. is in a minority nationwide of even having such a cap on indoor services. And there have been no known outbreaks outbreaks linked to masses. Uh, The archdiocese itself has also enlisted public health experts, including experts, people at Yale University, for example, to come up with social distancing and hygiene protocols to ensure that religious worship services can be conducted in a safe, socially distant, hygienic manner. D.C. simply has not set forth any scientific evidence to contradict this. And in light of the Supreme Court's decision, which confirms that this kind of worship activity is at the core of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty, D.C. is going to have to be put to its proof. It simply hasn't done it. Well, I know that I speak for a lot of people when I say thank you to you and to the Beckett Fund. Uh, for for being there for these purposes, to stand in for people who need their def- their religious freedom protected. And, and if you could, and you just hinted at it a little bit, but give us a, a, a quick summary of your argument. Why is it that you believe the Constitution does not allow the government to restrict religious freedom just because they think there's a health reason not to? Well, as the Supreme Court recently said, as I mentioned, Worship activity is at the core of the, of the religion clauses and what they protect. More generally, the government is obligated to treat religion in a neutral way and singling out religion for disfavor treatment in this way and in ways that don't make any sense have to have a good reason. And when things don't make any sense, there isn't a good reason. Half of the archdiocese church in the, in the district can accommodate 500 or more people. St. Matthew's Cathedral alone can accommodate a thousand worshipers. The National Shrine at Catholic University. Will Hahn, we got a heartbreak. I got to cut you off for the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for what you're doing. We're going to talk about the vaccine on the other side. Come on back. Hello, this is Tony Perkins. With the balance of power in the U.S. Senate on the line, the runoff elections for Georgia's two U.S. Senate seats on January the 5th may be the most important Senate elections of our lifetimes. The outcome will have a profound impact on the future of faith, family, and freedom for all Americans. That's why we're inviting you to join us in North Georgia for our Pray Vote Stand Georgia Rally Tuesday, December the 15th at 7 p.m., Join me, Congressman Doug Collins, Congressman Jody Heiss, Congressman Louis Gohmert, Todd Starnes, Abraham Hamilton, and others as we join together to discuss how we can get involved. The rally will be at Truett McConnell University in Cleveland, and again, it starts at 7 p.m. For more details, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. This rally is sponsored by FRC Action and AFA Action. 
Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Today, our nation has achieved a medical miracle. We have delivered a safe and effective vaccine in just nine months. That is the voice of your president, at least for a few more weeks. Donald Trump announcing the release of this vaccine. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today here on Washington Watch. And we are now going to spend some time talking about this vaccine, whether you should be excited or nervous. How is this going to get distributed? How are we going to get 100 million people to get this vaccine by the end of February, which is what we have been told recently to help us have that conversation? Dr. Michelle Cretella, who is the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians. Dr. Cretella, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you for uh, for inviting me on. Always a pleasure. Well, we need you. We often need our doctors, and we need you today because we have heard a lot of different things. Um, this whole process, and of course, it's been created in a very political environment, and and for a while uh, we were supposed to be afraid of it because Trump was the president. Now we're apparently supposed mm-hmm. to like it because he's not going to be the president, it seems, much longer. But really, this is not a political thing. This is a medical thing. Um And we heard there the president, the clip we played at the beginning, announced that this has been done in record time. What's different about this vaccine that allowed a record to be broken to get it released much quicker than many people anticipated? Um, Well, to be honest, I cannot say what allowed it to um, be created in record time. 
Um, I will tell you that um, many of us uh, physicians um, are concerned about the speed with which it was generated because this is a brand new technology. Uh, we have never before used vaccines, uh, mRNA vaccines, um, in an attempt to get uh, an infection under control. So we do not have any long-term studies. Now, um, I, I want to I break in right there because I know I'm not going to be the only one who is not following you perfectly because those of us with, without medical degrees. Explain what the mRNA significance is and why that's different than other vaccines that people probably have. Sure. So um, this is the first vaccine that's uh, been created. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines do not contain any part of a virus, either live or dead virus. Instead, these vaccines contain a messenger, uh, a genetic messenger within them that will enter our cells and cause our cells to create a um, particle <clears throat> that resembles the virus protein, resembles the COVID virus protein, and that is what is going to trigger our immune system <clears throat> to make antibodies. Typical vaccines are created, as I said, using an inactivated viral particle, which is introduced into our bodies to generate, to, to trigger our immune system to protect us. So this is different. This is actually taking <clears throat> a genetic message called mRNA that goes into our bodies and triggers our, um, our cellular machinery to generate a protein that resembles sure. the virus. I, I, well, uh, um, <clears throat> tell me why, I mean, in, and we might all be speculating and you might be speculating, um, because there's so many things that are unusual about this year and this and this virus and just kind of the moment that this is happening. And, of course, we all know there's all sorts of conspiracies about where the virus came from. Why is it that this would be the moment? Because there are no shortage of vaccines. Those of us who have had children in the last 15, 20 years, there are no shortage of vaccines that are uh, recommended to put into children. Why would this be the time? Why would they depart from the normal course of using a, a a dead version of the virus to build your your immunity, um, rather, and, and and go to this new kind of modify your DNA, your DNA so it can uh, do it in a different way. Um, well, they okay. They didn't use only this new technology. The other vaccine candidates, um, several of the other vaccine candidates, also use the traditional approach. Um, why do the, you know, science is always looking for newer, better, um, and hopefully safer ways of accomplishing the same thing. The, the appeal, as I understand it, the appeal of the, this mRNA type of vaccine is that um, it actually does not stay around in your body for very long. It disintegrates very rapidly. Um, but... <laughs> Um, there has been controversy um, in that although these two vaccines do not contain, you know, some of pro-life uh, groups, many pro-life groups have pointed out that 
the two vaccines do not come from aborted cell lines. They don't include any fetal DNA in them, which is good. Um, but they are still controversial to some folks because the um, technology to produce them relied on, you know, some of the studies um, and particularly the testing during the animal phase of the studies did use an aborted cell line. Um, so for that reason, the Catholic Medical Association, Christian Medical Association, American College of Pediatricians, um, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, we want, we do want all patients to understand there's no fetal DNA in the, in the, in the vaccine. However, we do also stand up for moral conscience so that if there are individuals who say, I want only a product that is completely um, removed and has nothing to do with a board cell line, um, we do support moral conscience um, objections. We are also concerned <clears throat> because um, some very, uh, very well-renowned uh, physicians a former Pfizer VP, Dr. Michael Yaden, is one, has come forward and said, you know, he, in his opinion, in his professional opinion, the studies on uh, needed to be longer to establish that um, we are not going to risk disease enhancement. So, for, uh, for example, with the SARS-1 epidemic, there was a vaccine uh, created to protect against SARS or coronavirus-1. In those studies, it was found that the vaccinated, uh, that vaccinated individuals actually had a worse reaction to the virus. Um, that would be bad, know, right? Yeah, that would be very bad. <laughs> yes. Um, and we know the FDA has also come out and said, look, there's great risk for, there's definitely risk for allergies to the severe allergies, um, you know, so in our, for, for these reasons, there are, there are, without long-term studies, we would not be in support of mandates. Well, that, that's that's encouraging to hear. I think I'm, I'm I'm there. I think most of our audience would be skeptical of a mandate, and and I do think that there's. I will not be surprised if we see mandates in some senses rolling out. I think that uh, we've heard airlines talk about you can't get on an airplane if there's if if you don't have proof of this vaccine. Uh, we I, even if it's not. It can't be nation. I'm not, I'm not that concerned about it being a nationwide mandate, but I think states right. might do that, and certainly local governments could do that. Have you heard any rumblings, any indication of who might be willing to take the position that everyone has to have this for some reason? I have I have not yet in terms of at a governmental level um, uh, or or even like a medical organization level yet. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the news is very encouraging that everyone is looking, you know, everyone's looking for some hope here. <laughs> yes. Right? And we're happy that, you know, the, the studies that they produced, um, we, we know they got good antibody response. But remember, 
those were in generally very healthy volunteers. The elderly were not adequately studied. They were not studied in these trials. So, and the other issue that Dr. Yaden and other, uh, other scientists have pointed out is that the virus protein, the spike protein, which is targeted, is very similar to um, a hormone in pregnancy, which is necessary for healthy pregnancies. So there is the, a possibility that women of childbearing age who get this vaccine might, you know, they're going to generate antibodies to the spike protein, um, but there's this possibility that those same antibodies would attack the pregnancy hormone and cause sterility in these women. Well, so when you're facing significant potentialities like that, I don't see mandates as being ethically viable. Well, Especially, I think good. Yeah. And, and I don't think any of us want to see a mandate, but a lot of us are going to be yeah. facing this decision of should we should we get this thing at all? And I and I am and I am fortunate to be in a at an age and in a health condition where I honestly don't have much real fear of the virus. If I got right. coronavirus right. today, and I don't even know that I haven't had it. Um, because a lot of people are asymptomatic and, you know, I have at some point in the last nine months not felt awesome and I don't know if I had it or not. I didn't get tested. But to me, it's a balancing of risks of, well, there's risks from not getting a vaccine for sure to yourself and potentially to the community because community immunity is a good thing, right? But there are also, which is what you're describing, there are risks from getting the vaccine potentially. Vaccine injury is a real thing, and, and that, that gets you into the larger kind of debate over vaccines, which we're not going to do today. But how do you no, encourage right, people right. to balance the, the relative risks of getting a vaccine or not? Well, actually, what I strongly want to encourage other, especially if there are physicians in the audience, other physicians um, and lay persons, um, we need to look at um, repurposing medications, treatments for early treatment of COVID-19, and one medication in particular, which is getting more and more uh, positive publication in the scientific literature is ivermectin. So in other words, it is looking, it hasn't gotten much press, but it is looking in the scientific literature like we will have an alternative to, in other words, we won't need to necessarily rush into everybody get this vaccine, which is not going to have an immediate impact on our lives anyway, even in the best case scenario. We also need to be looking at the potential for early treatment with medicines that are safe, and ivermectin is one of those um, medications that, um, a surprising medication, used to treat parasitic infections that also has antiviral properties. And there are some 30 studies in the scientific literature looking very positive towards prophylaxis, meaning prevention of infection, and treatment of early infection. So we have more uh, we, meaning physicians and scientists, we, we have more work to do. We need to give people more options. 
I am I'm a, I'm a believer. I mean, we're all believers in science, as controversial as that is to say, it seems at this point. But and, and I'm encouraged, but I'm not surprised that we're learning about this virus, how to combat it, oh, and we're getting absolutely. different strategies to to right. do so. And so I'm encouraged. In medicine, we never encouraged. go with one, just one, so you know, one strategy. There has yes. to be multi-pronged approaches. Um, so no one, I've not encountered any organization that is anti any medical organization that is anti-vaccine. Sure. But now, you know, I, I want to get, get clarification yeah. on something you said just a moment ago. You said sure. it won't have an immediate impact on our lives, even in the best case scenario. Why do you say that? Why, if we're about to distribute hundreds of millions of these vaccines, will it not have an immediate impact? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, even, even Dr. Fauci has, has said this in the um, not to uh, distant past has <laughs> said this because um, not everyone, it, it takes time to build the herd immunity necessary to um, decrease rates of infection. Uh, and and uh, one scientist calculated that um, not everyone who gets a vaccine will actually be protect you know be protected um, and based on the numbers we have now this appeared in the British Medical Journal a physician estimated that 251 individuals would have to be in, uh, vaccinated before one person would see benefit I can't explain all the statistics I hear on, on the air but yes but the real the unfortunate reality is with with vaccines it takes time to see the benefit um, so that's why it's your long-term arm in terms of, of um, going after uh, curtailing an epidemic. Uh, but in the short term, we need to find ways to treat people now to keep them out of the hospital. And that's where medications like ivermectin, um, and in fact, there's been, a, I think there's been a lot of press also about vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C, things like that, which are over-the-counter, just keeping a healthy immune system. But that's, that's what we have to look at. We, we've got to keep praying and researching and, and producing a multi-pronged approach to this. And we will. Dr. Michelle Cortella from the American College of Pediatricians, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all you're doing to keep us informed. Appreciate it very much. Folks, that's all the time that we have for today. We look forward to joining you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.